Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. Hear these words from the book that we love. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Y'all can be seated. So um, 35, 40 uh, women from this church are at a women's retreat, if you didn't know. This weekend, our once-a-year annual women's retreat. And um, I, I feel like I'm a really self-sufficient dude, even with the kids on my own. Um, but it was really funny. Like, food, check. Um, taking care of sick kids, that happened, like worst time possible, check. Uh, no limbs lost, no, no, no blood at all came out of my children's bodies, like no scrapes, no, um, there was vomiting, but there was no, don't worry, she's not here, she's not with your kids. Um, but like the one thing that it's hilarious that I can't do without my wife is, is use our printer. <laughs> 
Um, because uh, it's a long story. Um, but I, I, I despise iPads, actually. But um, it, it just shuts down. So if you see me going like this, it's like the passcode. This is actually her iPad, too. Um, but it's funny. I'm using the iPad this morning for my sermon notes because my wife was on a women's retreat. So it came, I came this close to doing it all. But anyway, Genesis 18. Um, if you've been here for a while, you know we've been in the book of Genesis making our way through from the very beginning. And um, here we are approaching halfway through and, and really over the hump in the narrative of Abraham, which is roughly, um, well, it's the end of Genesis 11 through uh, Genesis 24, 25. Um, and for the first 11 chapters of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, if you've been with us, you know, humanity was on this steady descent to be less and less healthy, more and more evil. And there are these small moments of redemption. But on the whole, uh, things get worse and worse and worse, and humanity gets more and more and more corrupt until God calls one man, Abraham, and he says, I have to start somewhere. So through you, through this one man and his family, I'm going to rehabilitate the world. And that's the beginning of the story of, of Abraham. And we haven't talked about this that much, but at the end of the book of Joshua, which is the book of uh, the Israelites settling in the promised land, like they're, they're out of Egypt, they're, they've gone through 40 years in the wilderness, they've come into the promised land, driving out the other uh, nations. And right at the end, Joshua is reflecting back, and he says, you know, when God first called Abraham to father this nation, he was an idolater just like some of the worst of the nations around us. It's really interesting. Uh, Abraham was in Mesopotamia, and it says his fathers and his siblings were worshiping idols before God called him. That's idols. Think, think Abraham, who's called friend of God in the New Testament, who's called man of faith, like his life, his life's journey is a model for ours. He starts out for half his life Worshipping at best a stone, at worst a demon. That's Abraham. And God calls him. I've got to start somewhere. And what happens is Abraham says yes. And uh, he's, he's called by God. He's like adopted into God's plan. He's justified. That's how the New Testament used the word. It basically, think of that as accepted into God's presence by faith or based on his trust or allegiance to God, he's accepted before God as righteous, but God's still got a lot of work to do with this idolater from Mesopotamia. So really, the whole Abraham story up to now, 12 through 18, is God working on this guy. And if you're new, it started right away. First, there's the call. Like, will he follow? And we don't know. There's no record of how many people God tried before Abraham. And they just said no. So there's the initial call, which is drastic. Leave everything you know and follow me. And he does. And then very soon, God says, trust me in famine. And he doesn't really, he does a little bit. He goes down in Egypt. Things get really bad. He has to learn how to trust God in famine. Then soon after that, he has to learn how to trust God with wealth. He comes out of Egypt. He's sent out uh, with all these riches from the house of Pharaoh, whose, whose, whose family gets the plague because he starts working against God's plan through Abraham. 
And he's got the problem of being wealthy. And so there's this face-off between Abram, if you, if you remember, in, in chapter 13, between Abram and his nephew Lot. It's like, what are you going to do with wealth? Are you going to lord it over the world exactly like you're not supposed to? Or are you going to be meek? Are you going to not demand every right you could possibly demand and just, just become a tyrant? And he's meek. He lets Lot take the, the wealthier land. Then... 15 through 17, he's waiting on God's promise. It's just this trial. He's been through a trial of famine, trial through riches. Then he's just in this long, long, decades-long trial of waiting. God's given him this promise that he's going to have an heir, and through that heir is going to come through this family of faith. And it just keeps not happening for decades. It's a trial by waiting. And we're still in Genesis 18, looking at God making Abram into the kind of man that he needs to be in order for God to bless the world through him. It's like God calls this guy, but it's not because he's good. It's not like he's ready to go. Even when he has faith in God, God's doing this diligent decades long. I mean, some of us have been Christians for like a couple years or a couple decades. This dude's 99 and God isn't by a long shot done working on him so that his planned blessings can come to more demon-worshipping idolaters like him. That's the Abraham story up to the moment. So if you're still with me, this is the passage, the, the amazing legacy of this passage, of God inviting Abraham to talk him down from 50 righteous in the city of wickedness that won't be destroyed down to 10. What we're really looking at is God taking the next step with Abram, saying basically, okay, if I'm going to rehabilitate humanity through you, I need now to do the next thing that humanity is for, that was lost long ago, untold eons before at the fall. And that was to actually struggle with God. To actually, get this, it almost sounds blasphemous, except it's not. It's the word of God. Humans were meant to be invited into how God governs the world. Not God himself, but almost like these mini-gods. Theologians call them vice-regents. Vice-kings under the one king. Here God invites Abraham to influence God. Here's where God invites Abraham to influence how God will act in the world. Think of it this way. If God has kind of like a divine council, like a divine congress, Abraham gets a seat and gets invited to struggle with God. And make no mistake, this is what human beings are for. It's part of what it means to be in the image of God. Some of us call it intercession. Some of us just call it, call it prayer. There's more than one kind of prayer, not just asking God for stuff. But when you ask God to do something, which we've already done through song, through prayer, many times already in this service, last half hour or so, you are entering into like a divine council and you're struggling with the living, eternal God saying, you can even see Moses saying, or excuse me, Abraham saying, 
I know I'm really stepping out here, God. Did you see that going along? It's like, I know I'm just dust and ashes. I know, I know I'm struggling face to face with the living God, but um, a little more mercy. <laughs> Every time you ask God for anything, you are entering into the counsel of the living God and influencing how he governs the cosmos. That's what's being rehabilitated here that was lost at the beginning. And you can already see how I'm going to try to show you how this matters for how you and I think about our place in creation today. So, three points. The formation, the formation of a priest. That's what, that's what Abraham becomes in this passage. He becomes a priest. We're going to talk about what a priest does. The formation of a priest, the actual work of a priest, and then the legacy of priests. Not just in Genesis 18, but as we see it throughout the Bible. So, the word's not used here. The, the word is used soon. But what Abraham becomes here is a priest. What's a priest? A priest is just somebody who mediates between God and man. Get this. This is vitally important for how you think about the Christian faith. A priest is a friend of God who goes before God to plead the case of others. And what this requires, obviously, if you think about it, maybe not obviously when we think about it at first, in order to be a priest, two things have to be in place. You have to have a relationship with God and you have to have a relationship with other people. You have to identify with both. You have to identify with God in a certain way, and you have to identify with mankind in a certain way. If you lose touch with either, you lose your priesthood. You lose this part of your vocation. If you lose your contact with the living God, you lose your priesthood. If you lose your contact with human beings, like outside of your own little individual precious private world, you lose your priesthood. The priest must know and be close to God, but he also has to love people like God loves people. The priest has to be both like the nations he's trying to minister to, but also unlike them in certain ways, right? The priest has to affiliate with other people, but also in certain ways be separate from them. The priest has to have affection for other human beings. But the priest also has to, by words or just simply by the priest's presence, in addition to having affection for people, the priest has to challenge the people around them that they may know their need for God and reach out. To God. Think of it this way. When the church, I don't want to say loves people too much, because you can't love people too much, but when the church gets in a place where it's just not clear how they're challenging the culture around them to turn toward God, they've lost their priesthood. And it's always been so with Israel, with the people of God across all times, in nations. Uh, when the church over-affiliates, and this is not a new problem, my goodness, this is not a 2023 problem. It's a human nature problem. When the church over-identifies with any political party, for example, around them, they've lost their priesthood. Why? Because you're doing a great job about sharing an affinity, 
I mean, you got to be really blind to not see something good that every political party wants for the world, however much evil might be rubbed around it. Why? Just because it's really hard to be wrong about absolutely everything. And because we're not utterly, totally as corrupt as we might be, apart from the grace of God. And so it's good to see the beauty and the truth coming through a political party, but you completely lose your priesthood when you become unable to say, yes, but God's this way in all these other ways. God's over there, not over here. If you over-identify, you lose your priesthood. In verse 21, in Genesis 18, the Lord says, I will go down and see whether, he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Apparently, these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, who we've heard about, this is not the first time they've come up in the Abraham narrative. You hear about them in chapter 14. You hear about them in chapter 13, because Lot goes and pitches his tent right alongside uh, Sodom. And it's clearly shouldn't. It's, it's a mess. He's playing with fire. And then later, Lot, when Sodom is invaded, he gets carried away with the prisoners of Sodom. And Abraham, Abraham goes to battle and sets him free. Apparently, this city really is the culmination of wickedness in the day. And if you know the next chapter, the infamous chapter of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah coming under the judgment of God, you know that there's a close-up look at the evils of this city. As messengers of God visit the city, very quickly there arises hostility, violence, even attempted rape against these visiting messengers of God. And Abraham intercedes for them. Let me just back up here. Just when you hear the words Sodom and Gomorrah, you think about the evil. Even in actually, if people don't really know the Bible, they know those cities' names as like objects of uh, God's righteous anger, let's say. But do we wash over the fact that before we get there to a scene of judgment, here's Abraham saying, please God, please God, Deliver them. Let them go. One of the questions that comes out of passages like this, and it, it's actually not that rare. You see it a lot in the life of Moses, which is the very next book of the Bible in Exodus. You see Moses for a moment, from time to time, for just a moment, you see Moses and Abraham here looking like they're a little more or a lot more merciful than God. It's like God's the prosecutor and then these priest figures, whether they're strictly speaking, under the Levitical code, priests or not, they're priestly figures. They're coming before like God like they're the defense and saying, I'm the merciful one here. You have mercy. It does seem like that a little bit. God's saying, I, I got to let my friend Abraham into what I'm about to do because of what I'm trying to make of him. And then here's Abraham saying, please have mercy for the sake of 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, anything. Just have mercy. Is Abraham the merciful one here? Is Abraham more compassionate than God? No. One of the things that you really can't miss about this passage, and it's the same as you keep seeing this as you study the scriptures, is God is the one who by design 
is rehabilitating human beings and putting his heart in them and putting them, God puts in Abraham, God puts a Moses, God put his son Jesus Christ, God puts you between the people he wants to have mercy on and his very fair divine justice. There's something about the stuff of human beings. This is what we're for. To be propped up in the place where there's no hope and everybody around us, including us, are guilty as sin. And we stand up and we say, mercy has a word here. God wants his heart of mercy in human beings. He's the one who puts in Abraham to be between the people and his justice. There's, there's one of these scenes in Nineveh. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, Jonah's the, the reluctant prophet. He tries to run away. You know, the fish swallows him up. He gets spit out on shore, and he ends up going to Nineveh. One of the things that gets a little lost in the story is Nineveh is the arch enemy of Israel. It's like Sodom, but Sodom is probably like a little tiny city of maybe a couple hundred people. Nineveh is a proper capital of an empire. It's like Sodom times a thousand in terms of volume of people. And they're doing to the utmost Sodom and Gomorrah stuff. And when Jonah is reluctant for like the fifth time in that very short book, God just says, look. And the voice of God actually ends the book, if you're familiar with Jonah chapter 4. He said, look. He says, look. Do you have any idea how many people, to say nothing of animals, that are in this city? And should I not care about them? It's like God sent him, Jonah, to be the one who carries the warning. But at the same time, he's pleading with his reluctant prophet priest who just will not stand before these evil people with a word of hope. And he's like, do I really have to do this myself? Should I not care that this massive city is just evil to the brim? Should I not care? This is God. And he raises up people to say, yes, and I'm going to bring the heart of God to hard places and I'm going to stand up with hope because I really know, really know, not in a patronizing, lip service way, I really know I'm the same. I'm the same. I'm, I'm, I'm without hope. You change a few, you change the EQ on my life a little bit, and I will not say what I'm not capable of. I'm really the same. And he had mercy on me. He had mercy on me. And I bring it to you. And folks, it's hard to remember that this is happening all the time. Why? Because, I don't know, it's just the way of our life. We have a rhythm. We have work. We have home. We've got chores to do. We've got our own personal anxieties. But every day, people who don't know a word of hope are confronted with the news that God is merciful and he can forgive anything. I was on the phone yesterday, yesterday, with a, um, a military chaplain who did hospital chaplaincy. Um, I've been talking to him about that for a while. And um, he said, 
I, I'm going to give you one example, but there were a thousand examples of it. And he said there was one day, he was in the burn, burn unit at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And he walked in, and he wasn't even supposed to visit this guy. People give calls for chaplain visits, and you kind of go through the hallways, and the person he was supposed to visit was asleep. And he just walked through, this, uh, through the hallway, and a door was open. And this guy, who had clearly had a terrible burn, and his face was all scare, scaly, you know, from, from a bad burn, and bright red, and he just looked monstrous. He was just looking at him, and my... Um, that was my brother, this chaplain. <laughs> um, uh, he, he stopped and he just looked at him. And he just walked over. And it was almost just like, a, like something that you'd, you'd, you'd put into a skit. Like if you're doing, doing a skit about how it works to talk to somebody about the faith. But it's not a skit when people are, are facing death. And he said... Uh, he saw the, the collar that he was wearing and said, who are you? And he said, well, I'm a chaplain. And he said, oh. He said, I've been thinking that I could pray. Um, and with no guile, he just said, I don't know how. And that doesn't seem like that special of a story, but if you stop for like a second, the number of people, maybe they're even in this room, in our city, if they were to take one movement toward prayer, they wouldn't know how. It's not rare. Listen, listen. It's not rare at all. It's half your block. I guarantee it's half your block. And we're, most of us, like churchy people. And if you just stop and take that in, if we really believe this is a place created by God, this whole creation is a holy temple, and all the people walking around are in his image, they don't have the first clue how to lift their heart or their voice to him in prayer. They just have no idea how it works. It's the truth. And you are for them. You're a priest. God took a risk. These people are a mess. Abraham was an idolater too. But I got to restore him somehow. I don't care what, struggle, what sin struggle you had this week. I don't care how unworthy you feel. If you know how to lift your voice in prayer, you know the point of access that very few people around you have. And that makes you a priest. And that makes you incredibly rare. And it's not because you're good. But it's not an accident. That's the first point, formation of a priest. Very briefly here, I've already talked about the work of a priest. He just starts asking for stuff really boldly. There's a tone of humility, but he starts asking. How about this? And how about this? And how about this? Does God ultimately grant Abraham everything he asks? The answer is mainly yes. There's no way to say yes or no, but it's almost entirely yes if you look closely. Almost everything that Abraham asks of God God says yes, and there are a few things, painful things, that he says no to. Let me show you. God says yes to both the letter and the spirit of Abraham's requests. He starts from 50, right? 50, verse 27, verse 28. Excuse me, um, verse, verse 25 and, and following. If there are 50, if there are 50 righteous in this city, will the whole city be spared? And God says yes. And he gets them all the way down to 10, right? What we need to see in that context is 
the actual context of the situation has completely changed. If there were 10 righteous in the city, if there were, the city would have been totally spared. So God's training this guy, right? He's rehabilitating. He's showing him how it works. He's inviting him into the struggle. But the fact is, like on the first try, the context really changes. But it's not just the letter that God awards. He also awards a yes to the spirit of the prayer. Seriously. All of the righteous, and we use the phrase righteous very loosely here because we're talking about Lot, if you know Lot. All of Lot's family are initially spared, the exception of his wife who turns back. But Lot and his family, who are like less than 10 people, are spared. We don't see it in this passage. We see it in the next passage. In the end, God has no intention of wiping away anyone who would turn toward him in hope, which we can be assured Lot, however many other problems he had, was still willing to say on some level, Lord, have mercy on me. That does come through really clear. And by the way, in the New Testament commentaries, he's referred to as righteous Lot. He's a guy with faith. That's what makes him righteous. So it's not just the letter. It's the spirit. God rescues Lot and his family because Abraham prayed. It's the truth. The letter and the spirit. But the city still goes down. It seems ultimately that evil was at a tipping point and that the patient God, remember, um, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, in abounding in steadfast love. It says at the beginning of the passage, this outcry had been coming before him. Now listen to this. This is the, even with the no, prayer is involved. Even with the city going down, prayer is involved. It says there was an outcry against Sodom. What does that mean? That means a lot of people who were being brutalized by the sins of Sodom had been screaming for a long time, just like the Israelites later would in Egypt, God, when's this gonna stop? When will they finally know some kind of retributive justice, but also just stop? Even if God's not building a nation out of them, we learn from Melchizedek, God's got people all over. And there's a lot of people crying out to God, maybe if they don't even know the name Jesus, who knows who he'll choose to have mercy on. Even the city going down was an answer to people's prayers. Prayers everywhere in this passage, both for mercy and for the retributive justice that brings relief. I think that's powerful. What's the work of a priest? It's this. Pray and pray and pray. Use scripture as your guide Use the cry of your heart. Of course you're doing it in ignorance too. Of course Abraham doesn't have, who's, who's he got in mind? He's got his nephew Lot in mind. Does he have in mind all the people who'd been brutalized by the violence of Sodom? Maybe not. But he brings it all to the divine council. He's wrestling and he trusts God. And you better believe that God influences creation through all of these prayers. All of these prayers, all of God's actions in this passage, 
is response is in response to prayer. And I think that usually gets lost in, in studies of this passage. So that's the work of a priest. Being between God and his people and crying out to him. Thirdly, the legacy of the priest. Let me, let me, let me end this way. In Matthew 5, in Luke 24, Jesus, these are, these are just two of the places where Jesus says this famous line um, to his disciples. Everything in the law and the prophets, this is in the law, it's, not, it's a story, not a rule, but law is also shorthand for the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. All the law and the prophets are about me. Jesus Christ says this. All the law and the prophets are ultimately about me. I'm at heart through all of them. You can see my characteristics. You can see how the story is leading up to me. You can see how I, Jesus Christ, am the fulfillment of all this story. Anytime we're in the Old Testament, we can ask, where can we identify that this passage is about Jesus Christ? We have to. Or it's not a Christian sermon reading from the Old Testament. Jesus says we have to. Where's Jesus? First, we find out in the New Testament that Christ is the perfect priest who comes from the, from the physical line of Abraham. We've been saying this along the way. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is, I'm going to bless all nations through you. How does that ultimately happen? Through Abraham's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus Christ. Through him, all the nations are blessed. How many people in the world are really righteous enough for God to spare all creation, all creation from his retributive and good justice for evil? The New Testament would tell us just one, not 10, not 50, not 45, not 40, not 30, not 20, not 10, really just one, Jesus Christ. It's for his sake, his sake, that God brings mercy to the whole world. Let's not forget the cross. The cross is the perfect exercise of Jesus' priesthood. It is the place where God and man find a path together. Perfect forgiveness, perfect atonement, perfect reunification through the self-offering of the man who was God. Mediation. Jesus was commissioned to be the agent who would proclaim and enact total forgiveness. And on the basis of that work, we're told, he still intercedes all the time, praying as a high priest. Not just for good people, for all people. Do you remember he said from the cross, as the, nail, as the nails were going in, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It, you need the whole sentence. It's not just like, man, are they evil all the way down. Forgive them. He, he doesn't just like endure with some kind of forgiveness that he was assigned to give. His heart's with the people, driving in the nail, saying, if they only knew. They're so, they're so lost. How lost must they be to be doing this right now? That's all in his heart. And out of that fertile place, he says, forgive them. That's your priest. 
That's the priest for the world. And then he puts us together as a church and makes us a nation of priests. When you think about priests in the Bible, it's really important. There's layers. In one sense, there's just one priest, Jesus Christ. In another sense, there's some. There were individual priests who did the work of the sacrificial priesthood in Israel's day and who do priestly ministry through pastoral vocations in the life of the church today. So there's one, there's some, there's also all. In the New Testament, we're told the entire church is a nation of priests. You're a priest. I'm a priest. If you're in Christ, like it or not. The book of Revelation, this is the first book of the Bible, Genesis, the last book of the Bible. In Revelation 5, the Apostle John says, what Christ did by his cross, by his blood, is he ransomed us and he made us all priests. Revelation 5, 9 and 10, chapter and verse. Go read it. A few chapters later, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 of the book of Revelation, there's this beautiful scene. It's this scene where God is moving towards earth to have both justice and mercy enacted. It's just this very strange, mystical vision of earth's future. We don't know exactly how it's going to all be worked out, but the Apostle John was given this vision of the prayers of the saints. Get this, every prayer of every Christian ever. That's what the prayers of the saints are in Revelation 8. They're on the altar of incense before God himself. And he gets a vision of, is it literal, is it figurative? I don't know. Revelation's weird. This much is clear. John is saying, every prayer of every saint ever, from whatever motive they had, however much they understood of God's grand plan or not, every single prayer is there on that altar before God. And an angel comes with a censer of incense. That's how you, in the tabernacle and temple, that's how you spread the scent of the incense around. All those prayers are gathered up with God's own fire, put in this censer, and they rise before God. And from that place, God's servants start moving to act. What does that mean? That means no prayer is ever, ever lost. Never has been, never will be, ever. And not only that, not just lost on his ear, somehow not lost in his saving actions. Tim Keller, who died this week, real good friend of this church, uh, the broader family of churches, the Liberty Communion. He said it like this. He said, in the end, we will find out that God will answer every prayer yes, or he will answer what we would have asked if we knew what he knows but he wouldn't do any of it without prayer. I know that's a lot, but that's what these scenes throughout Scripture... The prayers of the saints uphold the world. The prayers of the saints bring mercy on earth. The prayers of the saints bring justice. And all the way back in Genesis 18, it's a very early place in the Bible, God's saying, I could do it all on my own, but I will not, because 
I love these crazy, sometimes evil people I've created. And I won't give the enemy of their souls the victory of not letting me work my merciful plan through them too. That's how important you are. And we never think about it. Because if we did, as the Apostle Paul says, we would pray without ceasing. And this isn't a chastisement. It's just, I mean, if this is true, if this is true, what do you want God to do in the world? How will we ever expect it to happen if we don't pray? Stuff is at stake here. James says, and it's not for nothing, we don't have because we don't pray. He's not talking about we don't have the Lexus we want because we don't pray. God help us. Is that what we really need in this country, in this generation now? He's saying you don't have that stuff of God's goodness that comes from abiding in him, worked out in the world, because you don't pray. So pray. God has commissioned us for this purpose. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.